0: I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself Spinning in circles and talking to myself Welcome to A New Spin on Autism Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello, welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I am Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad, and today is a wonderful, awesome, terrifically sunny California day for me. have no idea what it's like for you, nor do I have any idea what it'll be like for me when this airs because, you know, I like to record in advance. But I do promise you one thing. It will be surprising, and we are in the throes of Autism Awareness Month, so it's really awesome to be surprising about autism. How perfect is that? Okay, we're going to just do away with the okay, 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 great guest giveaway, but we will definitely do stories from the
1: road.
0: So make sure you stay to the very end of the show where we'll do that. Today's going to be a unique approach to my show. What, what happens for me a lot of the time is that people want to interview me on other shows, go figure. Uh, so I'll go on other radio shows or, or television or I'll be interviewed for articles. And there's a particular group of, uh, my daughter gets this thing, I think it's called HARO, but at any rate, my daughter does my PR and she gets these queries and people will say, you know, we're looking for information on this and she'll ask me what I think and I'll tell her and she'll send what I thought and sometimes I'm interviewed by this process. So now, you know, a little behind the scenes of how people get into your magazines and into your newsletters. So here's the thing. I got one of those, or my daughter got one of those. She asked me. I gave it an opinion, and then the reporter said, oh, I'd like to interview you on that for my article. And I said, well, you know what? I have this cool idea. How about tit for tat? You interview me, but you interview me on my show. So she said yes, which is truly awesome of her because – Most people would say, oh, I don't know, I'm a reporter, I like to write it down, I don't know if I want to talk, (laughs) but but the advantage for her too is that she's going to get the recording so she'll be able to make the article that accompanies the show, so how cool is that? Um, Well, not really accompanies, but uh, will be a reflection of what we talk about. So that's cool, and it's new for you, and it's a different way of going about it. Plus, we're going to bring out a subject that I haven't talked about, so that's really cool. We kind of talked about it a little bit during Father's Day on, from a, a flip side of it, but, um, but even so, let's let's just have a jump in with both feet and see how it goes. This is Madison Hopkins. She's a reporter from San Diego. She's working on a story about the rate of autism diagnosis in females and the different ways the condition can present itself to try and provide resources for women who are seeking out credible and straightforward information on the topic. First of all, I think that's really awesome that um, somebody wants to do uh, an article on that and really isolate the things from the female point of view, as in we often talk about why there's more men, but we seldom talk about it looking at the female aspect, so that's really cool. And um, she's still a journalist student in SDSU, so she's getting ready to start her master's at Northwestern, so she's a really busy young lady. We're excited to have her on here, and this is going to be a fun show. So welcome, Madison. I really appreciate your flexibility.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to kind of get the experience of talking to you.
0: Cool. Well, let's let's go ahead and ask a couple of questions about about you and this article so that they get sort of a framework. Um, So is this an article that you're putting together yourself and then you're going to put out there trying to get published, or is it something you've been asked to publish?
1: Something right now it's going to be published on an SDSU publication, but after that I'll be freelancing and trying to get it published elsewhere in San Diego. Because although I'm looking at national trends, I'm also focusing on a couple specific female-centered groups for disabled children in San Diego, so I'm using that as the kind of tie-in to the local crowd.
0: Oh, very cool. And so let's just give people a little bit of the behind the scenes. It is Autism Awareness Month, and I think a lot of times parents especially, but but professionals too, uh, we don't know how we get the news we get. You know, what is the process for what makes its way to us? So what do you have to go through to try to get it published outside
1: of SDSU? Oh, I would say that already just the reporting on this story has been one of my most ambitious projects to date just because, a, I mean, on the actual reporting end of it, you have to find people who are willing to talk about this. People who want to come out and openly discuss the disabilities in their family can be rare because it can be hard on the families because talking about a disability is obviously a touchy subject. And some people really want to get out there and share their story, and other people are much more private about it. So just the process of going through... Finding people who can really shed some light on this topic has been difficult already. And then on the flip side of it, when you go to get it published, which is a little bit untraditional because I'll already have a finished product when I go to these outlets to try and get it published, which traditionally you would go to an outlet say, hey, I have this pitch, I have this idea, this is what I'd like to write about, would you like to publish it? And they say yes and no. But at this point, I'll have the completed product. And it'll be online either way, so I don't think I'm going to have too much trouble finding someone to pick it up.
0: Very cool. All right. So now for, what about for the people that would like to be a voice in the world in a similar way that you are? How did you get on the hero? Like when they, is it, was it hero? Is that how you found it? Yes. Me?
1: Yes. Which is okay. help
0: a reporter out. Yeah. And how do, so, how do you get on that side of it? Cause I know how we, we get it, but for the person who might want someone to interview, what's your process?
1: It was actually very easy. Uh, this is my first time using Harrow. A friend of mine who's in PR suggested it to me because she uses it from probably your end of things, you know, looking for people who are interested in talking to you. And I thought, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble finding professionals who can speak to this specific topic about females with autism. So I put one on there, went on the website. I think I had to make a login. Everything was totally free. I just put a pitch up for what I was looking in, and next thing you knew, I had 20 emails to people who wanted to talk about it.
0: Oh wow, that's really so. Maybe that's how I'll maybe that's how I'll get my next guest, and we'll see. How yeah, that goes. it was a great, great service. I was very impressed. Oh, very cool, very cool. All right, so any anything else that you think? Like, so recognize that you know, for a lot of people, they're they're my audience. Uh, a lot of them are parents who either you know, completed the job of working with their kids, and their kids have grown um, <laughs> in whatever fashion they've grown in, or their are people just entering the journey or then the middle. But all of those stages have parents who are often trying to sort of share and get an awareness to autism that they feel is more reflective of truth than what they read in the studies and papers and things. And so... What would be your word of advice, given that you're sort of in a in a opening the door phase
1: yourself? What would you share with them? Um, I would have to say that I fully kind of understand the difficulties that I think a lot of those families must be going through, and that I think society in general has a very pointed view of what they think autism spectrum disorders are. And the truth is it's a spectrum. There's so many different areas of autism it can present itself so differently and uniquely in different people that I think a lot of times it means you overlook certain aspects of it. So that's what I'm trying to do is that when I first – I've always been interested in women's issues. And when I first started looking into some certain mental health issues with women, you automatically see a lot of kind of underreporting on it. And now when it got closer to specifically autism, the only information I could really find on the topic of how it relates to women was – blogs and kind of first-person accounts and not very many credible news reports on the topic, which is hard when you're looking for clear information. And so I came across something in one of my books or whatever that, as you know, autism has historically affected men at a four-to-one ratio compared to girls, boys to girls. Mm -hmm. And autism rates have been on the rise, and within that, the female fraction of that has been increasing significantly higher than men. So why men are still by far and large, more affected by the condition, girls are on the rise. So I wanted to know, why is that? Why is that happening? Is it just that there's more no awareness about the topic? And that kind of led me down this rabbit hole of seeing that, oh, there's so many different ways that autism can get overlooked in girls, and why isn't this talked about more?
0: I agree. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great angle to be going on. So if a parent were to have an angle that they think needs to be Looked at, would you suggest they just start blogging? Would you suggest what would you suggest they do to get started?
1: Yeah, if they wanted to get their word out there, I would say blogging is a great way to go. There's a lot of really good blogs, specifically like to Aspergers that I've seen out there that people write in first count, or they write about raising their children. I would say there's just some pretty good communities out there for that. There's what I think it's WrongPlanet.com is a good forum where you can connect with some other people about it and. Yeah, I would say that for right now, blogging is the best way. And then other than that, just trying to get it out more on the mainstream, trying to find health reporters who might be interested in this. Because I think a lot of the issue is that so many people in mainstream society just don't even realize that this could be an issue. They don't right. realize, they just think mental disabilities, it affects everyone. But they don't realize there's so many nuances and discrepancies that, that can happen. So really, if they were ever interested in taking this idea to another reporter anywhere else, I think it would be a great topic. Or if they want to go out writing for themselves, blogging is a great way to take that. Cool.
0: Okay, so now we're going to flip, right? We're going okay. to flip. And, but before we flip and you start interviewing me, oh, this is so fun. <laughs> I get mm-hmm. to be the interviewee. I get to be. Okay, before we do that, I'm going to lay something out there that I don't know if you're aware of. but, um, And I'm not sure it's gone public yet. I have mentioned it once before. I'm on the inside track on this because I happen to uh, work with the group that, uh, a child of the group that did the study, but in Lebanon it turns out that there's more girls than boys with the autism diagnosis, so that's a very interesting reality check, and so right now they're doing all the investigating the stats to make sure they didn't make a mistake because it's so counter to everybody else's info and trying to figure out why that is. So while everybody wears a thinking cap on why the heck that might be, I just want to, because I'm going to switch sides, and I know it's sooner than I normally do, I'm just going to go ahead and give you that mid-show break. So you are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And we are talking with Madison Hopkins, and she is going to now talk to me, and we're going to try to get into this subject of why would it be that um autism in females seems to be getting diagnosed more and more. Is it on the rise? Is it a diagnostic issue? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This could be fun. Let's see if I know anything. Okay, you're on, Madison.
1: Okay, great. Well, first off, I saw from your bio that you specialize in narrow feedback, and that is not a practice that I have seen regularly and a lot of my autism research. So could you quickly just explain what that is and why you chose to pursue that in education and career?
0: Yeah, um, neurofeedback is biofeedback for the brain. Most people are more familiar with the term biofeedback. Uh, Biofeedback is just a way of giving you information about what's going on in your body that you couldn't otherwise do without technology. So, for example, you don't know your accurate temperature unless you're looking at a thermometer that's placed on your body or you know now we have many fancy ways of reading temperature but we need some intervening methodology to get that information um, heart rates, blood pressure, uh, you know, pelvic floor dystonia can be affected because we we look at the the muscle tension. We so all kinds of things can be done with biofeedback and neurofeedback is a subset of that, which is to look at brainwave behavior, and see in what ways the brain is operating in an out of balance sense. So just to really super 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 simplify a very complex subject. Um, let's say that you have a more tired brain than you should overall so you might have a state that looks ADHD like because you're firing too many slow moving waves instead of a nice sort of complement of higher frequency, mid frequency, low frequency and so now you're operating slower, you think slower, you hear slower, you you know you um, answer slower, you know somebody asks a question and they've left the room by the time the answer comes out of your mouth, well a whole different world exists for you because of this one problem and when I put sensors on someone said I can see that problem and I'm looking at the EEG and I'm able to say you know this this is just going to make you process so slow that you're out of sort of out of beat with everybody else and then we use that information or I use that information in this case and put in numbers that say you know I want you to now I want this game that you're looking at. So this person with the sensors on is looking at a game. I'm looking at an EEG. And the game is going to operate better as they make higher frequency waves and create a greater state of homeostasis or balance for their brain. So now they hear a little faster, see a little faster, respond a little faster, and they're more... You know, matching more correctly with everybody else and have a more functioning life and and now they live in a different world essentially, and the different world they live in gives them different feedback and that continues the the momentum of the healing forward and that 's a super simplified version of what mm-hmm. it is, and why I got into it is because I adopted all those special needs children I adopted you know six kids that were special as a result of abuse and stuff, and then also genetically and Many were multiply diagnosed and four had autism plus, plus fetal alcohol syndrome, all kinds of things, and uh, retardation, which is the medical term at the time. And so I had a big load to correct and deal with and help and try to, you know, figure out my kids. And when people say, why would you ever do that? Well, I was undiagnosed Asperger's, so we were just a bunch of crazy people helping each other. But I was a step or two ahead of them. And in that process had to start educating and figuring out and educating and figuring out. And usually the education was wrong. So educating, throwing that out, figuring it out, educating, throwing that out, figuring that out. And then um, we were doing really well, but two of my kids just couldn't get off the spectrum. They couldn't One was ticking really bad. He'd gotten Tourette's, which is a six to one chances of onset. So it was, it, it was, tough, and um, and one was just not changing at all, no matter what what we threw at him, he'd learn something and forget it, and learn something and forget it. And so I was still looking, despite all my education and certifications, I just finished being certified in play, and I read an article about neurofeedback, and when I read that, the science hit me as perfect. I got it mm-hmm. in a conceptual way that a lot of people find challenging. And I just jumped ship and went, I think this might do it. And then when I started, I saw immediate change on myself and on my family. And so though it takes repeated sessions for my slow-moving miracle to um, evolve, he is evolving always and changing and growing and becoming constantly more a part of the family and more verbal. And it's just been a wonderful adventure. So I'm, I'm very committed to sharing it. And thank you for starting with that question.
1: That sounds great. So when you say that you're working to get them off the spectrum, do you mean that just making them more functioning within their autism, autistic abilities? Well, you know,
0: it's a a really controversial question, and I'll answer it Mm -hmm. the way I always answer it. You know, autism is itself behaviorally diagnosed. It's not diagnosed by a blood test or a chromosome test or something, although we do see correlations. So if you no longer fit the criteria, you're declassified as autistic. So you're no longer autistic in that sense. Um, are you still quirky? Absolutely. Do you still have some leanings, of personality traits that are related? Absolutely. Uh, but are you autistic? Well, according to the way we diagnose, the answer would be no. So, for example, my son, who is a helicopter mechanic and uh, has been overseas twice, and you know he's worked, he's a National Guard sergeant. He's you know he's not autistic. Uh, he still has an auditory processing problem, and and he was more his brain was more likely for post-traumatic stress disorder. It was more fragile. So when he went overseas, when he came back, he had PTSD and I had to treat him. And then when he went overseas again, he had PTSD and I had to treat him. So, um, so things, yes, but autistic, well, you don't fit the criteria. If we find at some point the actual genetic or, or, you know, if we can pinpoint this is what causes autism, then what we would say would be different. We would say... He is a, uh, you know, he's a person who has the predisposition for it now, but he no longer has the symptoms. But we still say they don't have the symptoms, mm-hmm.
1: so. Okay. Okay, so it's moving on a little bit different topic. Uh, you travel the world working with autistic families. I have just briefly caught a couple glimpses of your web series and your podcast. And during those experiences, have you seen many differences in the way autism is seen in boys and girls? Both in the age in which they are diagnosed and the traits they display. Well,
0: certainly I have more boy clients than I do girls, so it plays out in the number of people that hire me. That um, that there are more boys than girls. Certainly, where the parents are going, oh, I got to do something about this. Um, I do see changes in how they're diagnosed and how they're treated and and how it plays out. So. The girls that I do work with, it's an interesting reality in autism and girls that the lower their IQ or their intellectual capability is, um, the more prominent the number of girls are. So this four to one isn't across the spectrum. It's not like four to one um, all the time. It depends on where you're looking in in the spectrum of whether or not there's... Uh, a two to one or a three to one. or So it averages out to be four to one when you look across the spectrum. The lower the functioning level, the more um, even Steven you get as far as the numbers and the rates of girls to boys. And so there's all kinds of theories on that. I think that part of the reason for that is because girls are less just like with the, in, in it in in the ADHD population we're very aware that girls get sort of left behind a lot because they tend to be the ones who are daydreaming in class and the teacher expects them to be more emotional anyway the teacher expects them to be sensitive the teacher expects them to be more creative and, and sort of imagining their future children and off in their own head a little bit more than they do the boys but the boys they're more on top of it I saying no 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 focus do do sit 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 because the boy tends to um, fight that state more and be more physically active and be more disruptive. So there is a kind of alarm setting on the behaviors that boys will do when they're afflicted in, in some way with a focus problem. Now, autism is a whole brain disorder, but it has within it large aspects of ADHD. So it's a nice comparison. I could have used OCD too, but we'll use ADHD. Um so you're going to have everybody going, "Oh no, 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 no." And noticing it with the boy much much more acutely in these when it's higher in the spectrum because there that's the place where it can fall away, where where somebody can have uh, autism and not have it diagnosed because you're not being as disruptive. With the boy, they're going to be more disruptive just by the nature of how they fight a state. And there's much more to it. There's, there's the hormones that go on, and, but you just ask diagnostically. So I would say that what happens is very often the girls end up adults getting themselves diagnosed. Much, and that becomes more common. So uh, a girl who is higher on the spectrum, it's a 4 to 1 ratio up there, but um, sometimes as much as 6 to 1. But is it really? Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe what happens is that she's got her big corpus callosum and her oxytocin and not as much testosterone, and so she's managing to sort of play out the actions of normalcy better. And, um, and is less of a problem in the classroom and less of a problem to everyone and fits her gender description better. And so it's only her awareness of her own anxiety and her own challenges uh,
1: that brings her to eventually get diagnosed. So how do you feel like if you were telling some parents what you could look out for in a girl who you may suspect have autism, what would you tell them to look out for in their daughter as opposed to what you traditionally deal with a son?
0: Um, you know, I don't think so much that it's it's different in the what you look out for, is, as in the what you expect from a girl versus a boy. So the first thing to adjust is that. With a girl, you want to be able to say, well, what? Let's use perseveration. Do you know this term? No. Okay. Perseveration refers to the doing of something over and over and over. So when they call it stimming, some people call it mm. ismine. Yeah, I've heard that. Okay. Um, they're, what they're talking about is perseverating. So everybody perseverates on something. If you fall in love, you'll perseverate on the guy you fell in love with. He goes, oh, he's so handsome. Oh, he's so handsome. always oh, so handsome. To the point where everybody wants you to stop talking about him and, you know, do something already. So that's perseveration. Now, when perseveration happens and it's behaviorally strange then we notice it much more than it's when it's behaviorally sort of fitting into um, known known gender stereotypes. So when little boys perseverate, now I'm not talking about the lower functioning, because once you're getting into the lower functioning, the perseveration looks like hand flapping or flipping fingers or like it's weird behaviorally. Mm. And so then everybody sees it, whether you're a boy or a girl. But when it's a little bit higher up, the perseveration tends in boys to be around inappropriate play with toys, where they're repeatedly playing the same game over and over and over again. And they tend to be, um, not wanting to communicate while they're playing because they're so single minded of purpose. Well, a, Boy, in general, is more single-minded of purpose anyways. His brain is preset for that. So a boy already has a brain that um, doesn't switch and multitask for lots of reasons, one of them being this sort of pathway between the two hemispheres. Um, It doesn't switch and multitask as easily as girls. So here you have this boy who, and boys also, by the way, what lights them up is more the ball-shaped things and the, like, this is predetermined in boys, period. One of the reasons they're more sport-inclined and, you know, I'm going to have all kinds of letters now for saying that, but but it's still true. Um, You know, the things that actually fire up a male brain in a child are more the inanimate objects They just are. Neurotypical boys and neurotypical girls are more fired up by language, more fired up Mm -hmm. by social context. So you're going to have a bigger, more obvious difference in the boy when you now make him stuck there. When you make the girl stuck there, it's not as obvious because it's not as big. So... It's already big in the boy. He's already pushing you away in a, you know, don't communicate with me right now. I can't flip gears. I'm being single-minded of purpose. And now you add the autism component, which means it gets very stuck there, and it gets really obvious and really difficult for parents and teachers and the people in this world. In girls, they can offset it a little bit and what fired them up and what they got stuck on in the first place was more you know sort of what we would call socially appropriate So they may tend to be more the Gabby girl who doesn't listen and talks 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 and you're like trying to get a word in edgewise. And, you know, she's actually really uncomfortable when you get a word in edgewise, so she talks and talks and talks and talks. And it takes time for you to notice that she only has a few subjects that she's interested in because she was little and she was learning to talk and it was really cute. And so now you can have that difference. It's still spectrum behavior.
1: Um, so that's just one example. There's lots. But does that help? Oh, absolutely. That's exactly a lot of the information that I've been kind of seeing on, on personal accounts and blogs, people saying, oh, well, I never looked at my daughter in that way because, yes, she was obsessive about reading, but that wasn't that weird for a little girl. Whereas if you look at a little boy, when he's obsessed about bugs or something, most people realize that's a problem. That's not normal. So I think that aspect comes into play a lot. But you were diagnosed as an adult, correct? Correct, correct. And I want to add yes. something, and then I'll, let, I'll, I'll go ahead and go
0: there sure. with you. Um, the other thing is this: this the myths of autism are a really big problem. So one of the myths of autism is that people with autism don't like to be touched. It's a total lie. It could be correctly stated that many people with autism have areas on their body and ways in which they don't like to be touched. That mm-hmm. could be correctly stated, but you can't say autistic people don't like to be touched. It's wrong. Now, if you hear a myth like that and you see it diagnostically and you think that that's the way it is and you have a little girl you have a little boy he's just punching you You, then you're going okay (laughs) I want to hug you and he and he doesn't want to be hugged so he punches you. you you know that things are out of balance but um when you have a little girl and she's wanting to hug you and she's all over your lap and she can't leave your lap you're not thinking autism but it might be it might be that she's sensory-seeking, and she has to be on your lap, and she can't stand not to have that input. It still matches the diagnostic. So the, one of the main problems in my book um, on identifying all of this and not leaving the person stuck to identify themselves later is recognizing that the myths are probably misinforming you, that the already existing idea of what autism looks like is wrong.
1: Exactly, and that's really where I'm trying to go with this piece in general, I think, in in that same train of thought, just that there are a lot of preconceived notions about autism that might have historically been what was widely accepted to be true, but so much new research has come out saying that it's not true. Right, right. All
0: right, so you wanted to ask me about me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, I know you were diagnosed as an adult. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? What originally inspired you to seek out a diagnosis, or did you, or did someone just tell you?
0: Well, you know, it was, it's interesting.
1: Um,
0: my reason for seeking out the diagnosis has more to do with making everything congruent. So I'm going to walk you through a couple of things. So I yeah. never knew I was different. Um, it's only because you can't know that you're different until you're no longer as different as you used to be. You can't know what you are till you're kind of stepping out of it. You really can't. You just live in your mm-hmm. own world of whatever that is, and that's for all of us. In the same way, you can't really know you're the same. But anyway, so let's go with that. So, the, you know, there were things, there were people who were always testing me for when I was young, and, you know, I had a really high IQ, and they couldn't figure out why I had really low marks, and why I was always daydreaming, and why did I play the piano on my desk? It wasn't a piano. And, you know, why was I catching, I was catching little dust things in the air, but they were really floaties in my eyes, so there wasn't really, you know, little things like that. Mm-hmm. I had reasons, but nobody was really asking. They're just weirded out. So I had little things like that along the way that I never really thought about that I was so different, but I I took the lead in all relationships so that they weren't looking at me too much. Um, It wasn't until I was uh, already raising kids that the – Statements started to reach me, like they were doing a documentary on me and my kids doing a prison tour where we were entertaining in prisons, and they went and talked to one of my old friends, and she goes, and I met her and all her kids, and she was such a good mom. Who would have thought crazy Lynette could be such a good mom? And I was like, crazy Lynette? I wonder, did they used to call me that? <laughs> right? so, so little things like that, you know, and then the memories start as I healed, I healed and changed, and grew, and developed, and I, I would look back and go, oh, or my kids would be doing something, and I'd know fully how to help them no longer do it, because I used to do it, and I would knew what would drive it, and then everyone would go, how do you know, how do you know, I'm like, it's obvious. And the Mm -hmm. fact that it wasn't obvious to anyone else started to bring clarity to me. And then I had, you know, another friend said to me, you're so out there, and you don't have to try to be weird on stage, Lynette. You're already weird enough. And I'm like, I'm weird? Me? So these things, they kept sort of filtering their way to me over the years, and I kept trying to help my kids, and my kids kept getting better, and I kept knowing more about how to help them than anyone else, and that kept enlightening me, and I got a little better. And so it was that sort of... Um, journey where I got the the 2020 vision of hindsight constantly saying, "Wow, look who you used to be! You must be normal now." <laughs> so, so at one at one point I went for the diagnosis not because I had the problems so mm-hmm. much still, although I still have facial recognition issues sometimes. Um, I went for the diagnosis because I was a world-renowned autism expert. And I thought, you know, let's really be honest with everyone because I do have a lot of families going, how do you know? And, um, and so I sat down with a psychiatrist, psychiatrist and I said, I just want to know what you would diagnose me as if we went through my history. And I told you my stories. And I also thought it would make a great book, so I'm going to write a book called The Seven Senses of Me. And mm. so I thought, and I did that, and uh, and she, at the end, she said, well, Asperger's, right? Now, I'd, over the years, been diagnosed with depression and schizophrenia and different things, but as we put it all into one big uh, basket, Asperger's is what fit everything. And now Asperger's doesn't fit into like the dsm-5 got rid of it so now it would be called high functioning autism with some special character things
1: um but on that note i was hoping to have you know someone like you who can speak to how do you feel that being diagnosed later in life would affect affected you do you think it affected you at all
0: i love that question because i was really surprised
1: I was really surprised.
0: I spent a lot of time saying, "Why does everybody want the diagnosis? Let's just look at where you're at and, and improve, and, and try to feel happier, and, and function better, and learn more." And um, but I actually felt better having the diagnosis. It mm-hmm. was it was something to to now put to bed. Whereas without the diagnosis, without the label, without the thing, I was just Out there, weird, crazy, right? I was, I was the person that couldn't recognize her boyfriend if he shaved his mustache. I was like, Mm -hmm. like you know, it was, it was, it was sort of um, undermining in me emotionally to not have a diagnosis because I also came from a lot of abuse. My mother used to beat the crap out of me, and. Then when I had the diagnosis, I could even put her reaction to my behavior to bed. And it all kind of, because it was a time when you just didn't diagnose people. not, Not unless you were really, really a big problem. And so you always ended up with what they would call an emotional disorder and a label that was inaccurate. So for me, getting the diagnosis allowed me to, again, look back over my life and put it all to bed and say, okay, let's see if there's anything left that I might want to fix. And I call it fixed because, in fact, I have a, uh, I d- use neural feedback, and I'm able to look at a dysfunction in my brainwave balance and correct it. So I'm not a part of this political argument of it's bad and it's good and it's healing or it's cure or it's not cure. I actually fix it. You know, I go, hmm, I'm still having that facial recognition thing. Let's see if I have that, uh, paroxysmal activity in the right temporal lobe still. Yep, better fix it. Like, so, you know, it's different for me. It gave me something to do that with. And I did feel better having the diagnosis, but because it was retro active it was about my it was a historical diagnosis I'm not sure I would have felt better had I gotten it earlier in my life because I might have played into the limitations of it and that's a big question you know if you're given a diagnosis do you now embrace its limitations and use it as an excuse and become it bigger and I see that everywhere so it's it's tricky stuff it's really tricky stuff.
1: Okay. okay, well, that's pretty much all my questions. Unless you or anything else you want to say about the topic that I missed? Um,
0: let me think. All right, so if we're looking at the girls versus the boys and we think in terms of how they're maybe being mis- misdiagnosed, I like to give um what I call takeaways or cookies to my audience mm. so that when we hang up, there is actually something they can do differently or know differently as they walk around in the world. So, what I think I want to share is sort of a summation of it, which is to say when you you know when you have a baby, so you have a baby or your cousin is a baby, or your you know your mom is a baby um, if it's a girl, don't just go oh then then there's not going to be a problem you know, and don't think that the myths are correct, actually, just look for anything that looks like consistently uncomfortable, and it'll be probably sensory-driven. So in a baby, girl or boy, in a baby, this looks very much like a sensory issue. Maybe they can't suckle at the breast unless the lights are off. Maybe they can only be held far away from the body. They don't like to be held close to the body. Maybe they can um, only listen to you with their eyes closed. You know, so if you talk and their eyes are open, they scream, but when their eyes are closed, they coo. You know, so you're looking for sensory confusion in the early stages. If they start to turn their or twist their body away from looking at you, something's up. If their eyes push away the second that you make contact, something's up, because babies seek all that. So if the baby's sensory system is in a healthy place as it develops, it's not gonna push away like that, girl or boy. So just, you know, starting there, maybe that's a takeaway if you know somebody having a child, and then know that it's, uh, it's genetic and it's certainly in the, in the female population, more often when there's a girl with this problem, there's also family members with this problem. So much more so even than the boys. The boys can be more of a one-off situation. Um, It's it's still usually in the whole family, other places, other diagnoses, but when there's a girl on the spectrum, you almost, I mean, the 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 odds of there being other family members on the spectrum are so, so, so high. And so you want to know that and look around and see your family and help the whole family. Don't just focus on this one who's, more broken and therefore is being attended to take a look around at your whole family and say, wow, look, you know, in my, in my family, this really plays out my niece, my nephew, my, <laughs> you know, my grandkids. Mm-hmm. So we were, because we knew to look around and to watch for it, we changed the story as it showed up. One of uh, my grandkids showed severe signs of autism really early in and has zero signs within a couple of years. So if you really focus in the early stages when it looks like a sensory issue, you can really change the story. Great. Okay, okay so well, now you okay, say thank, thank you for much. being here, and then we'll switch.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, thank you so much for having me on. I, I Honestly, was great to talk to you about it. I love getting more information about this, especially from someone who can speak firsthand and as an expert.
0: Yeah, it's neat, isn't it? And it was so neat of you to be willing to interview me. How cool was that? That was really awesome. Now, is there anything you want to share, since it's really you being interviewed, as much as that didn't seem like that to the audience, Madison Hopkins? is a reporter from San Diego. She's working on a story about the rate of autism diagnosis in females and the different ways the condition presents itself to provide resources for women who are seeking out credible and straightforward information on the topic. So, Madison, is there anything in this um, journey you've been undertaking that that maybe you want to share, like a resource you found or an awareness that you got that you really want to share with everyone before you say goodbye?
1: I guess I would say that the most important thing I found out through all the research in this journey is that just never assume anything about it, never assume that it's just not autism because it's the girl, never really assume anything about it because of the gender of your child. If you think that there's something not quite right or something maybe different about your child, get it checked out as soon as possible because from all the parents I've talked to, all the families that have been affected, the sooner you find out what's going on, the better suited you will be to deal with it in the future and this can present itself in so many different ways. Remember that it's a spectrum, and get learn all you can about it. If you ever need to know anything about it, go online, learn about it, and do what you can to get help for your child or your family member or yourself or whoever it is.
0: All right. And, Madison, maybe when you're finished the article, we'll have you back on, and you can tell us your backstory, your reasons why, and share what you've discovered in the completion of creating this article.
1: That would be great, and, yeah, I would, I would be happy to listen to your podcast going forward, and I'll let you know when the article gets get published. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, thank, thank you, you and have a great day. You too.
0: And that was Madison Hopkins. How cool. What a fun show. I really like being the expert. Can you tell? Okie It is time for Stories from... Well, since we're talking about girls versus boys, I guess I should talk about a girl. That's what we'll do. Let me think, let me think, let me think. Oh, alright. I think I gave you so much sort of full and complete information that I, I want to make this just sort of a fun, light, enjoyable story about one of the quirks in, um, in female autism is, is often that they're, you know, they're very good talkers on, on occasion, not always. But the higher spectrum girls often are very good talkers. In fact, one of their things is they just, they're so good at talking. And since girls are focused on behavior, they can be often very good at talking about behavior. Um, in fact, that's my savant. I have a savant in behavioral analysis. So I just see it, in, I actually visually see behavioral responding, pinging around the room, almost like watching a spider web be built. You know, one person does this, then I know that that person will do that. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of like watching the pool sharks hit the, <laughs> hit the cue ball, and then everything flies. and He knew exactly where it was all going to go. And I, I sort of have that in behavior. And that's kind of a, a common thing for, not necessarily at that level, but for girls on the spectrum to really be able to see what's happening with uh, behavior. But I have a grandson who also can do that and so he tends to talk to other adults as if he's an adult and it really kind of irritates them um, because they actually don't see as much as he does and they don't see their own complicity in how he's behaving. So he'll have a feeling or a behavior and he'll then try to express to the adult why it's their fault. You, you can imagine the teachers don't really like that very much. Fortunately, he's almost out of school. So um, I was also like this, and I remember in I was I was like three or four years old in Sunday school, and they were talking about something, and I was beside myself. I was hysterical. I was crying so hard. I, because I couldn't help them to understand how illogical they were being and that there is no way that what they were teaching me was accurate and that the way they were teaching it was cruel. And I didn't have the language or the words at the time to express what I understood to be true and the way I could see their treatment of us and their treatment of the teaching as um, not only wrong but cruel. So. This would happen to me throughout my life. I would see all kinds of things. I would see words change. I would see all kinds of things. And so, uh, when I ran across this one little girl, um, it seems like the perfect story to tell. So here we are in Stories from the Road. This is me. I only ever. Played with this little girl once because it was in an airport, and I didn't actually. She's not one of my clients, but she was clearly autistic and clearly uh, beside herself. She's having a total meltdown, and the whole family's like trying to shush her and squeeze her and, and, and jump on her and do all these things that they've heard is good for autism when they're having a meltdown, right? And uh, what, but what I had seen is that the mother's eyebrow had gone up in one of those discerning expressions. And maybe the mother didn't even know she had it. She's haggard. Um, and so she had, had given this discerning expression when the little girl said, that man's breath is making me want to throw up. And so, so when the mom's eyebrow did this, I just happened to be in a vantage point to see it. When the mom's eyebrow did this, the little girl lost it. And so everybody's, ah, there's no reason, there's no reason, I have no idea why. And I just stepped forward, and I probably shouldn't have, but I did it anyway. Sometimes I do that just naturally because I do it in homes, you know, home after home after home. So I just stepped forward, and I bent down, and I said, tell me, is my breath okay? Because, and she's in the middle of a full-blown scream, and everyone's jumping on her. So I used a tone of voice that would cut through but be sort of soft. And I said, tell me, is my breath okay? Because I've been having a problem with it. And I noticed you're very good at investigating that. And everybody kind of was stunned that this lady moved over and said anything like that and kind of froze. And the little girl looked at me and she went, you should brush your teeth. And I said, oh, thank you so much. Just a minute. You know, I don't think I have my toothbrush with me. Do you think gum would work? And she looked at me, and she didn't answer. And I said, okay, I have two kinds of gum. What will mask my breath better, the mint gum or the fruit gum? And then I went, "Ha!" Ah. And she said, the mint gum. Well, by now, everybody's sort of stopped, gotten off of her, stopped pushing on her. And I said, thank you, that's awesome, I really appreciate that, I'm going to go get it. And I got the gum, and I started chewing, and I turned around, and I said, sometimes if a child feels you get embarrassed, they will have a meltdown. So straight-up talk usually works. And then the mom and I ended up having a real conversation. So this was my, um, my airport... Experience. I never really got this girl's name. I don't know much about her. I know she was definitely on the spectrum. That was definitely a meltdown. It was definitely interesting, and that is definitely um, a story from the road. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as The Brain Broad, and this is a new spin on autism where the host becomes the guest, <laughs> and we get answers. Today's question was, why is it that girls are starting to be noticed that, um, in the number system more than than they used to be and I believe it's because as girls age they go out and they get attention and they look for diagnosis but I also think it's the social sharing that happens on the on Facebook and amongst people of expecting autism in boys and not expecting it as much in girls and so as that social sharing changes so will the numbers in autism now what's going on in Lebanon remains to be seen Thank you for being here, because without you, I'd just be talking to myself. Oh, and that reporter. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of A New Spin on Autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and I'm talking to myself. Spinning in circles and I'm talking to myself. Spinning in circles and I'm talking to myself. I can't hear you.